You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robin Gabon, Senior Critic at Large for the Washington Post. And today we are continuing our series on race in America, and I am joined by the best-selling author, Jason Reynolds. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, before we get started, I would just like to let our audience know that you can join the conversation by tweeting to the handle PostLive uh, with your questions and comments, and um, hopefully I will be able to get to them. Uh, Jason, I wanted to start out just by reading um, just a really beautiful passage from uh, your book, uh, and if you'll indulge me for a moment. And I'm sitting here wondering why my mother won't change the channel and why the news won't change the story and why the story won't change into something new instead of the every hour rerun about how we won't change the world or the way we treat the world or the way we treat each other. And the, the art that accompanies them is so lush. I, I'm just curious how um, you, you balance those two things and if that was uh, intentional, the, the lushness of the artwork with the, the spare precision of the words. You know, um, such a good question. My, my partner in this, uh, Jason Douglas Griffin, who, who did this book with me, who was the artist, We've been friends for so long, we've been friends for 20 years, and our process of working together is actually one of complete trust. Um, and it isn't about the art illustrating the language, it's more so about the language and the art being in conversation with one another. And so I wrote this thing as three long sentences and I gave it to him. Um, and he sort of took, he read it and took from it what he wanted and interpreted it his way, right? And so the lushness, um, is more of an intuitive process. It's not, it's, not a, it's not always like I'm planning for it to be this way. It's more so like I'm leaning into the trust and the faith that I have in my brother to meet me where I am and to, and to figure out um, how to engage with this language by tapping into his own feelings and his own emotions and sort of putting that all on a page together. Yeah, I mean, there's such, um, I think, an emotional quality to, to the artwork that uh, really balances um, the, the the precision and the, the the sort of focus of of the words. I mean, you write a lot of, in this particular book about breath and the idea of an oxygen mask. I, I'm curious. I mean, what do you hope that your your readers take away? I mean, what were you, or in other words, what were you trying to give them? I, I was I was trying. It, it's such a I was, I was trying to um, assess what it is that I was feeling in 2020 and 2021 and still now, right? But in 2020 specifically, because during that year, it felt like we all were suffocating um, and it felt like everything that was happening was trying to steal our breath in all these different ways, whether you think of, you know, COVID as, as, a, as a respiratory um, a, a respiratory infection, which is technically what it is, right? Or you think of um, the murder of George Floyd and how he was murdered by strangulation. 
right? Or or the or the tear gas that came shortly after that, which which steals breath, right? Or the wildfires in California. Everything was sort of taking breath from us. Um, and and I was trying to figure out where exactly do we find our oxygen um, if we're suffocating? Because we weren't just suffocating physically. I think we were suffocating emotionally, socially, spiritually, mentally, right? All these ways we were we were being asphyxiated in certain ways. And I was trying to figure out well, where exactly do we find our oxygen? Where do we find our respite in the middle of, of such um, thick times? Uh, and and the, the point of the book was to say that perhaps we find it in the minutia of our lives. Perhaps we find it in these small moments that are the busyness of our lives um, keep us from. But now, because we've all been forced to stay in the house, we kind of have to pay attention to, ooh, I love a hug. Oh, my children aren't as annoying as I thought they were. Oh, you know, oh, the couch is a little more comfortable. <laughs> you know, all of this kind of thing. And I think that's what I was trying to say. I mean, the the gravity of the the circumstances that you address in this book, and just the um, uh, the intensity of the emotions. I mean, and it is a book for for young adults, and yet. Uh, I mean, it grapples with some things that I suspect a lot of people sort of feel that young adults should be shielded from. I mean, mm. can you talk a little bit about the, your decision um, to just very directly address some of these really difficult um, em emotional, psychological topics? I think, I think, you know, everything is rooted in my respect for young people. Because I respect young people, I know that they can handle these conversations. Uh, I know that that these things are not divorced from their life. Um, that that to avoid or to run or to hide them from something like this almost seems well. One, it's a bit naive, and two, it's 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 awfully dismissive because it it makes the assumption that we're hiding them from something they don't already know. They have feelings, so why why try to protect them from from something that exists inside of them already? Right, they're already wrestling internally with what's happening around them. Um, they're not going outside for a very long time. They weren't allowed outside. They couldn't go to school. They, 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 they were parts of the protests. Right, young people were a part of these protests. Um, they saw George Floyd. They saw uh, people dying of COVID. They saw the fires. They, saw, I mean, these are things that that all of us saw. And so to pretend as though they didn't see it um, is a little silly on our part. I think I think it's better for us to make sure that they that that they know that we know that they've seen it that they know that we know that they feel it so that so that we can create framework for them to process digest synthesize uh, and and sort of cope with all that's happening right like that feels more responsible it feels more respectful um, and and that's always 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 going to be my goal. I mean, you, you've said before that you sort of see your role um, in relationship to your readers, not as a teacher, but as uh, the cool uncle. I mean, <laughs> does part of that definition kind of give you a license, the freedom to, to really speak directly and, and honestly and not have to play that role of the, you know, quote unquote, parental protector? I, I think so. I think, I think that's a part of it. I mean, it's no different. I mean, all of us know what that the cool uncle is like. You know, mom tells you to do something, you don't want to do it. Cool uncle tells you to do it, and it suddenly sounds great, uh, or it suddenly makes sense. You know, uh, I think the distance between me and and their parents allows me to have a little wiggle room, right? I think all of those things are true. But what I'm hoping, you know, what I'm hoping for is that 
just like with the cool uncle, that that parents uh, use me as the leveraging, as sort of as leverage to to broach these conversations, right? Use me as a way to engage. I'm totally okay with that. I'm I'm careful about making judgment calls about parenting, unless it's about sort of keeping children from these books, right? That's a whole other conversation. But I, 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 you know, we'll get to that. <laughs> You know, but 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 I, but other than that, I'm careful about making judgment calls about parenting because I do not have children of my own. I do not know how difficult it might be. I don't know how complicated it might be, right? So I so I'm always careful. But what I but what I what I hope uh, happens is that people say, look, let's use the cool uncle as a way to get in there. Let's use the cool uncle as a way to soften the blow. Um um and and maybe let's even use the cool uncle to figure out how to humble ourselves so that we can so that we can be the cool father or the cool mother. Doesn't mean that we'll be less of a parent, um, right? Or, and less responsible, but a little more open to some of the complex conversations that a lot of young people are starving to have. Yeah, I mean, you you're very specific in saying that you're you're writing to black children, but you're writing for all children. I mean, what mm -hmm. is the distinction there? You know, when I say I'm writing to black children, I'm saying that that when I sit down at this computer, when I sit down at my pen and pad, my mind, my intention uh, is to write something um, through the through a black lens because I am a black person. I'm coming from a black space. Um, my experiences as a black boy growing up. Um, so I'm coming through that lens to write something that shows black children as nuanced and complex human beings, AKA as human beings, right? <laughs> right, as, 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 as beautiful and broken and happy and terrified and angry and joyous and funny and fearful, right? All the things anxious, Right, all the things I, I want to write black children as human beings because black children are human beings. Now, I do that intentionally because I think that it's important that we that we continue to push against uh, certain narratives, certain stereotypes, um, and and the easy route in terms of the way that we depict black kids. Right, it's like black kids either got to be the coolest kid in the room or the toughest kid in the room, and there's all kinds of dots in the middle of that that they also deserve to be. They deserve to be nerds and weirdos and artists and everybody else, right? They deserve to be disabled. They deserve to have learning differences. They deserve to have uh, 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 gender differences. They deserve all the things that I wanna make sure that we give them an opportunity. But if I do it right, their lives are still just um, microcosms of life in general. They're still just examples of humanity in general. So that you don't have to be black to connect to, to, uh, to black children or to connect to the stories that happen to have black protagonists. And that's what I mean when I write for all children. I write to black kids, but the themes are for all children. I mean, how would you say that you um, in, incorporate issues and questions about race in your work? I mean, on, on the one hand, you know, as you said, you are writing stories that have a universal connection to mm -hmm. other children, but at the same time, it's told through the lens of, of a black child. I mean, how do you see race being woven into that and the role that it plays in the storytelling? I think there's, there's a few ways that I choose to do it. I think sometimes, I try to be really direct and intentional, right? I choose intention, I choose directness, right? There are books like All American Boys where it's specifically about, you know, police violence, specifically about a white cop against a black boy. And, and um, 
white onlookers having to deal with the privilege of being able to turn away from that, right? And being able to sort of run and hide from that uh, and asking the question of, uh, uh, that is what exactly is the responsibility of the white onlooker, right? Um, which, which is a very sort of direct way of dealing with, with race in America. On the other hand, there are lots of books where I don't have any, there's no racialized um, subject matter, but instead what I'm always thinking about is how to create the black default. Right, when people, when we read novels where the race is not identified, what, what typically happens is that we default the character, specifically the main character, to white. In my books, what I'm hoping is that when people read my books, because I rarely say the race of my characters, but the hope is that they're defaulted to black. And that alone is um, a racial statement, is a political statement that is more powerful than I think sometimes we give, we give credit to. Right. So sometimes it's direct and sometimes it's just an, an, an intrinsic sort of thing where it's like people are settling into the blackness of a tale. Right. It doesn't have to beat you over the head. You're living in the fibers of that of, of that cultural sort of narrative so much so that you don't even know that you that you white person, white child, black child, uh, uh, brown child have defaulted the characters to black. And to me, that that is 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 true power, true movement. I mean, it's, it's subtle and yet it's a profound leap to not immediately center um, yourself if you are a white child at, in, in the story. Absolutely. And I think, and I think, and the profundity in that, I think, is that imagine if you could do that in a story, imagine what that means for your everyday life. Right. If you could, if you can figure out a way to not default yourself into the tale, to not center yourself into the tale, then there actually might be an opportunity for you to not center yourself in your everyday life when a little black when a, when a little black boy or a little black girl raises their hand and 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 decides to express a certain sort of um, discomfort or a certain sort of uh, a, a, the feeling of a lack of safety in a classroom that may be all white. Right. And I experience this all the time. I mean, just just yesterday. There was a young woman uh, in a school that I was visiting, who stood in a predominantly white school, a young black girl, went to the microphone and said, how did you, how do you deal with feeling like you have to change yourself or make yourself small or, or hide parts of yourself because you don't want to be judged, but you exist in a space where everybody else looks completely different than you. And, and you know that they're looking at you as someone who is different. That happened yesterday. So imagine if, if, if we can create a space where young people can learn that they, that, that they don't always have to center themselves, right? And then in that space, you may have some white kids who might look at this young lady and say, man, I need to figure out how to, how, to, how to be better or am I a part of this? Am I doing something harmful here? I'm not sure, but now I can at least ask myself these questions because I've learned reading books growing up that it's not always cool to sort of default yourself into a conversation or into a narrative. It ain't always about you. Right, that's an amazing thing. And, and, and it not being all about you does not mean that it's not about you at all. It just means it's not all about you. And that's, val and that's a valuable lesson to learn. <laughs> well, that is a perfect lead into a question that was submitted earlier uh, by Eleanor Berner in Maine, who asked, how would you have liked race to be talked about in school when you were growing up? I would have liked it to be talked about. At all, right? Like, not even at all. You yeah. know, I think it's February. So in February, we get a couple of pages in the book. We get Rosa, we get Harriet, we get Dr. King, 
right? Like we we and then we, and then we pick a black hero to do a book report about. I chose Charles Drew and George Washington Carver every year. That's the way it works, right? And that was sort of my experience. If, if I looking back on it now, I just wish we would have talked about it at all. I wish we I wish it had been woven more into our into our, our social studies classes and our American history classes. Um, it would have been really, really interesting, and it, and it would have been, and it would have been fortifying if the teachers were equipped to teach it. Because that's the other thing that we never talk about, right? Like we all want to talk about it, and we all want it to be taught, but it, but it needs to be taught from a place of, of like it, it needs to be handled with care, not just because it's a, a, a delicate subject matter, but because you're dealing with children. And so I think I and so I think I, I just want to make sure that we we talk about the fact that like yes I wish it were taught but I wish it were taught by somebody who wanted to teach it and who knew how to teach it much like Shakespeare right we're all taught Shakespeare but we're rarely taught Shakespeare well and so we grow up hating Shakespeare until you get to college or out you know and then you learn like oh Shakespeare is actually kind of amazing right I think the same we we run the risk uh, doing the same thing when it comes to the conversation around race. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't plan and train and educate ourselves to be better at teaching it um, if we're going to teach it at all. Well, to that end, you worked on uh, Stamped Racism, Anti-Racism and You with, with Ibram Kendi. And it was mm -hmm. a, a reworking of his book uh, for uh, adults. I mean, when you were working on that, I mean, how did you uh navigate that very difficult subject matter and be able to speak to younger children about that and still not lose the essence of um, the lesson yeah i think and i, I think should mention me, that book has also been listed as one of the banned books right right i think you know for me uh i wrote it the way i wish somebody the way i wish my textbooks um, were written when I was younger. I think that, and I've said this, you know, I think textbooks are written with students in mind, but I don't think they're written with humans in mind, right? They're not written with people, humans, right? Blood and bone and muscle and spirit. They're not written for that. Um, they're written for role, role sheets and, you know, identification numbers for test scores. And, and because of that, the, the work seems to be a little robotic and mechanical and soulless and therefore not at all engaging because it's not actually thinking about the human behind that book, right? So for me, when I was, when I was working on Stamp, I just wanted to write something that felt human. And so there are moments where I, where I crack jokes. There are moments where I create sort of ridiculous analogs, right? There are moments, there are moments where I pause for a break. So that, so that everybody can sort of take a moment to gather themselves in the midst of an uncomfortable conversation because I'm actually thinking about who might be reading this book. It might be a 12 year old and I have just said something really, really intense. So let's just pause for a moment to gather ourselves, to remember that just because we're uncomfortable doesn't mean we're unsafe, right? Let's take a break. Let's, let, let's, let's sort of center ourselves and remember that we're still here. We're just reading a book. We're just having a conversation, right? And, and then we can continue on with the subject matter. I think all of these things were decisions that I made simply because I actually care about the people who might be reading this book. And so I approached the novel with them, the, the novel, I approached the book with them in mind. Um, it's, it really is that simple for me. Yeah. I mean, you, the word you use, discomfort, I mean, that is a word that has been used again and again in this conversation about what should and should not be taught in school, 
um, the way that children should be taught about American history, about diversity, this idea of discomfort. I mean, how do you respond um, to this belief that children should not, should never feel discomfort? I don't think I ever would have became the person that I've become if it weren't for my uncomfortable moments. I actually think that discomfort is the catalyst for growth. I think, I think discomfort is the springboard into possibility, right? Um, into the opportunity to be better, to be whole, uh, to complicate our own arguments, right? Discomfort is what allows us the space to complicate our own arguments, to wrestle with the things that we think we believe, to actually shake the ground on which we walk on, which is a frightening thing sometimes, but it doesn't actually mean that you're in any physical danger. It doesn't actually, like, 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 and I think that's the thing I always want to make sure that I impart. Like, those words are different words for a reason. Uncomfortable and unsafe are different for a reason, right? And that if you, that if you allow yourself to be uncomfortable a little more often, then, then somebody else might be physically safer, might be made physically safer because of your uh, allowance of your discomfort. A prime example, by the way, of this is I remember during the Me Too movement, um, which is an ongoing thing, obviously, but I remember at the beginning of that, there were a lot of men, myself included, who had to sit with the discomfort and really think through his life. Really, really take a moment to take some inventory of who he is and what he's done and what he says and how he moves, right? Does he overtalk? Does he cut women off? Does he, all these things right, that made me really uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, I, I understood that like the, my, my, my sort of, my humility in that moment to allow myself the space to go ahead and feel that burn, might be might mean the safety the real safety of of the women around me i'm willing to take that i'm willing to deal with that right the other thing i'll say about it is for young people if they if they are uncomfortable and i've been in situations with kids where they've expressed discomfort right it's on me as the adult it's on the teachers it's on all of us not to sort of not to to bow out right but for us to figure out a a, a way to create buffers and and insulation uh, in these conversations so that the moments of discomfort don't actually end in any true damage, right? We can facilitate through the discomfort like we do in every other part of, of, our, of our lives, right? It's, it's a normal human thing. I got to tell my mother something that I know she's going to be mad about. I'm uncomfortable about it. She knows I'm uncomfortable about it. And therefore, she helps me process this after she says how she feels then we kind of work through things, right? You just work through things. I don't want us to ever get to a point where, we're, where young people feel like they never have to work through things. That's a scary thing because it never will stop. Is that one of the reasons why you are so adamant about meeting with young people and going out there and, and talking to them um, you know, face to face back when that was much easier to do? <laughs> of course, of course, I think. I think it's, it's, you know, to be honest with you, I think it's really easy to create um, all sorts of ideas and narratives about a person and the things a person has made. It's a lot more difficult to uh, pull out of a conversation or run or this, that, and the third when you're talking to that person face to face. And when you realize that that person is just a human like you, and so when I show up to these schools, you know, my whole, the whole reason I, I go to all the schools is because I feel like young people need to know that it's just, that I'm just me and I'm no different. I show up with sneakers and t-shirt and just like everybody else, I'm, I'm cooling because I want them to see like, yeah, it's just me. And I ain't no, I look just like your uncle. 
I ain't no different than you. And 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 so I hope that you feel and, and I tell them my story. I give them so much of myself. Right. I, I open myself up and, and and lay myself bare in front of 12 and 13 and 14 year olds so that they can then trust me and know that vulnerability isn't a, isn't actually a vulnerability. Right. That, that, that vulnerability could very much very, very well be. Um, a tremendous strength because what it does is it allows people around you to also be vulnerable. And in that moment, we can do away with some of the discomfort and actually move toward a, a, a collective goal. I mean, I know that you um, sort of came to books and to writing um, a bit later in life. You were not a, the voracious reader as a young child. No. Do you, what, what was that moment for you that the, the, the switch turned and you suddenly embraced the word, the written word? I, it was, uh, I, I read Black Boy by Richard Wright. Um, and it was given to me by a teacher. You know, I, my, my issue with reading was, you know, number one, I didn't think books were for me because I didn't think that they took my life into consideration <laughs> um, on the page. Um, as a young person. Uh, and number two, like many young people, I felt like books were a means to an end. You read a book to get a grade. Uh, and, and if books were only about grades and I was getting a C, you know, then unfortunately we, it's like we use, we use books as a way to measure intellect, which I think is a really dangerous thing especially when you're dealing with young folks, because you get a C or you haven't read something and suddenly you feel less than because you haven't read a book that these folks have read, or you get a C and you believe that now you're an average person because you didn't do well on an assignment, right? And the grades start to attach themselves to your identity, right? They, they sort of mesh themselves and meld themselves to your psyche in an unhealthy way. And then all of a sudden you feel inadequate simply because of, of you know, of your book list, of your TBR, right? Like, it's a weird thing to, it's a weird thing to consider, right? Because the, the, we, we throw around this stuff, like if you read, you'll be more empathetic. If you read, and we know that, and by the way, we know that is actually not the case. We say that very cavalierly. It, it very well might be the case for young people, but it's not a guarantee that reading will make you empathetic. We know this because there are many adults who have read everything and are horrible <laughs> people, right? We know, so we, so we know, so, so we know this is not the case, right? So, so, what, so what I wanted to do and what this teacher helped me realize is that reading actually has, has nothing to do with grades, at least it shouldn't, right? What it actually has to do with is your ability to sort of see the world uh, in, in a different way, so to exercise and strengthen your mental muscle, to build patience and concentration and persistence and diligence, to, to, to sharpen your imagination, to grow your vocabulary. The better you're able to express yourself, the, the, the less angry you might be right? The more you'll be able to control your, if you can control your language, you can control your emotion, right? And if you can control your emotion, you can control your action. And if you can control your action, you might just even stay out of trouble because you know how to use this, right? And most importantly, it'll teach you how to listen to yourself because that's what reading is. Nobody reads a book and hears the author's voice. You read a book and you hear you. It's you talking to you. And that is a valuable skill to be able to listen to your voice as you move through the world. And so he gave me Black Boy and he said, now, having said that, I want you to read the first five pages of this book. And if you like it, you keep reading. If not, you close the book. And then the second page of the book, as you know, I'm sure, you know, the young Richard Wright burns his grandmother's house down. And that was it, I was hooked because it wasn't boring. Because it wasn't boring. 
There wasn't so much expository language. It wasn't 40 pages of buildup before we got to any conflict. It mm. happened on page number two. And I was all in because um, I didn't hate to read. I hated to be bored. Well, I'm afraid that I'm going to have to end it on that note. You are certainly not boring to this audience, but that's all the time that we have, unfortunately. But thank you so much for being with us. And I would like to thank the audience for joining me today. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.